Thanks for joining us today for the Ramp Church podcast. We pray that you will be encouraged and empowered by this week's message and you would encounter God wherever you're listening from. If you'd like to know more about Ramp Church Manchester or would like to partner with us in giving, visit us over on our website ramp.church/mcr or find us on social media. Now, let's go into this week's message. Great to be on this earth. Great to be in Manchester, serving the Lord with you. And um, anybody else? Great. Are you happy to be alive? Just give yourself a little like you're you're here. Like this is you fulfilling the grand purposes of God on the earth. It's happening right now. It's happening. Uh, your purpose and God's glory unfolding all at once. So I want to, um, with help from the Holy Spirit. Just um, encourage you guys with some things that I've been pondering this week. We're in this series about kingdom living. And if you missed last week's message from Micah, I really encourage you to go back and listen um, about mammon and about how we know which master that we're serving. And um, it was just how many of you were blessed and challenged and convicted and called up higher through that. And the word of God will do that. And um, so, Lord, we just even pray and we give you permission to continue to move us forward in our own maturity with you. And help us, Holy Spirit, to yield as you remake our thinking and renew our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, I want to share um, a a non-related word to my message. And um, this was dropped into my spirit. Yesterday, I was at the Message Trust Conference, and I just felt like the Lord gave me a word for some people who are in ministry or in a new assignment, in an assignment from the Lord, meaning the Lord gave you instructions, you've stepped out, and you've started in obedience and that new thing that God's asked you to, um, to do, but you're feeling a little bit like Isaiah and Isaiah 49. And this is what Isaiah 49, the prophet Isaiah, right? Like we would all agree he's pretty effective for God's purposes. Amen. How many, of we are th- how many of you are thankful that God, that God called Isaiah and that Isaiah obeyed what God called him to do? I mean, I feast on Isaiah's words pretty much every week of my life. I am like, thank you, God, for this man who spoke my language and speaking your word. Well, Isaiah in um, chapter 49, verse 4, just for the sake of time, I'm going to cut into this conversation happening between God and Isaiah. And Isaiah says to the Lord, I replied, but my work seems so useless. I have spent my strength for nothing and to no purpose. Yet, say yet, I leave it all in the Lord's hand. I will trust God for my reward. And I've always been so convicted by this verse, but I really felt like it was a word for somebody. Maybe you're watching online, maybe you're in this room, and you've started this assignment, and you, instead of feeling fruitful you're feeling a bit like this is spending my strength for nothing. And I want to give you the word in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, to be steadfast and immovable in the work of the Lord. Be steadfast and immovable in the work of the Lord. And praise God that Isaiah did not listen to his feelings and quit the assignment of God because he felt like it wasn't fruitful. I am thankful for that. So some of you in your work, in your assignment, you just need to be steadfast, immovable, only moved by the word of God, not moved by feelings. And who are we to judge if we are fruitful on this earth? Who are we? we, we I mean, compare what you see to what God sees. 
What did Isaiah see compared to what God saw? What did Isaiah see compared to what we even see about Isaiah's life? So stay steadfast in what God has told you to do. So now going into this series on kingdom living, I really have been thinking as I've been watching the news occasionally, only as I have the courage to do so, <laughs> and um, just thinking about the crisis and different things happening in the world, I'm, I'm kind of assessing my emotions, I'm assessing, assessing my thoughts and how I'm taking all that information in. Is it rocking me? Am I falling into despair? Or has there been a bit of maturity in the Holy Spirit in me where I can be stable in an unstable world? And in the crisis that we're talking, that we hear a lot about, you know, about the economy and financial pressure that people are in, financial pressure we are in, you are in, I really am hoping in my heart and praying, as, as I talked about in Colossians 4, I'm kind of with the Papfrist right now, and I'm struggling in prayer that we would be mature in the midst of the instability and the instability of our time, that we would really be a different breed of people. Like, I don't want to respond. I really feel this conviction like Stacy, And I even had Edith pray for me Tuesday night at prayer. And I was talking about moving house. And I was like, I've moved house a whole lot. And I really want to do better this time. Like, <laughs> I don't want to whine. I don't want to complain. Like, I'm ready to grow up. I know God's really ready for me to grow up. But I really do want to grow up. And now we've got, you know, increased pressures financially. And I feel like, Lord, I want us to grow up. I want us to go from this place of glory to glory where our thinking really is different. Like it's from the inside out, we are a different breed of people. We're the people of God. So I've been kind of assessing myself. I've been praying for us about that, that, Lord, I want this to be real. Our reactions, our reflexes to be different than people of the world when the same news is being given. Because we, like, well, like we talked about last week, we have a Father in heaven. We are of a different kingdom. We're nomads and foreigners here. So I want to start with Isaiah chapter 8. And I just want to again go over this whole kind of idea that the Lord brings us into his kingdom from darkness to light. And then he is, his spirit working in us begins to transform us. But we have to work with the Holy Spirit in renewing our minds. So our thinking is different. So our emotional man is different. Like I feel that one sometimes. In fact, if you ever hear James talk about that, just run for the door right away. Because he talks about, you know, it's not just your mouth and it's not just your thinking. Your emotions indicate what's going on in your internal world. And that's not to shame us. I mean, gosh, I would be perpetually in shame if that was to shame us, okay? But it's to challenge us that body, soul, and spirit are brought into this new kingdom. Body, soul, and spirit are impacted by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And so our emotions then can become emotions where we're lining up with joy and peace. So I'm like, I am wrestling in prayer. I'm like, Lord, do the work. I, wanna, I want to grow and um, I love this verse in Isaiah 8, verse 11. Again, through the words of Isaiah, they were so thankful he didn't quit right now because my text is from him. Isaiah 8, verse 11. The Lord has given me a strong warning not to think like everyone else does. He said, 
Don't call everything a conspiracy like they do. Don't live in dread of what frightens them. Make the Lord of heaven's armies holy in your life. He is the one you should fear. He is the one who should make you tremble. So this contrast, okay, don't think, and it's a warning, because if we think the same way, we will behave the same way. All of our behavior flows from our beliefs, and they're very much intertwined. So we're trying to align all of this into the reality, the truth, the higher truth, not what's going on here on earth, but what has been signed, sealed, and delivered for us through the blood of a new covenant that we have been brought into. And God is warning us, don't think like they think, or you'll end up like they have ended up. So I love the contrast, I love the story of Israel. Israel's story is our story, right? Israel's in Egypt, in slavery. They're oppressed, they're treated harshly, their life is miserable. They cry out to God in their distress, and the Lord delivers them out of captivity. So Israel cries to the Lord in distress, and God intervenes. And we have this similar story as Israel. We are, in, we are born into sin, into a sinful humanity, a broken world. And we begin to experience what Paul says, the empty life our ancestors handed to us. And that emptiness of life, it's distressing to us. And we try to manage it through career and through all these different ways. We're trying to cope with the dysfunction of our own brokenness and the world around us. But we can't master it. It continues to master us. So then we cry out to the Lord. He saves us. The moment we call to the Lord, we call in the name of the Lord Jesus, we are saved. Brought from that darkness, transferred into the kingdom of the son he loves. So we're transferred out of Egypt. In fact, last week I was, I was teaching kids' church, and we were talking about this. And so, you know, we were like acting it out. We were like, coming out of Egypt, you know, running out of Egypt, by Egypt. Or we're coming into freedom. We're not mastered by tyrants anymore of our own selfish desires. We don't have to obey every impulse. We have a choice now. We're going to worship the Lord our God. So Egypt is brought in then. Um, Egypt is left there swimming in the Red Sea. And Israel comes out into freedom, and now the Lord wants to teach them how to live in a way so they can experience the peace of God's rule in their life. So as you've probably heard this said before, he brings them out of Egypt, and then in the wilderness, he takes Egypt out of them. And I don't know which process is more grueling, right? Forty years it took to try to get Egypt out of them, out of their thinking, out of their values, out of their way of life. And so here we are on earth in our own wilderness of sorts, and God has delivered us out of Egypt. The curse of sin is broken through the blood of Jesus. We have freedom from the master of sin and death. We don't have to fear death, and we don't have to obey sin. We've been brought into freedom. And as we journey here with God on earth... He is taking the Egypt out of us so we can fully experience the promised land that he's prepared us for. So what does God do for Israel 
he's giving them lots of instruction. And it's filled, the Old Testament, you see all these instructions. And he's teaching them a new way to live. And it's working down into the very details, the smallest details of their life he's giving them instruction on. And this is a beautiful picture because God actually has a way for the smallest details of our life. His, the way of his kingdom, it infiltrates everything that we do and that we can have what, what Paul says is the mind of Christ. So every scenario that we're approaching, we're not looking at it through the lens of captivity, of our own selfish ambition, of our own impulses and desires. We are seeing it from the mind of Christ that leads to righteousness, peace, and joy. So what happens? How does this whole process How does God lead Israel? How is he leading us to become who we really are, the people of God? Nomads and foreigners here on earth. Looking to that distant homeland. Looking to that promised land. Experiencing the taste now, the down payment now. Waiting for the full manifestation when he returns. First thing, I want to give you just three things the Lord does is first, he simplifies their loyalties. So as we are processing our, our world, our navigating our finances, our time, juggling our schedules, learning how to be the kingdom people that thinks like God wants us to think so we can experience the joy he died to give us, the first thing he comes in is he gives in these 10 commandments, and the very first commandment that he gives is worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And that's going to solve a lot of the complexity in your life. That's going to bring layers and layers of peace to simplify your loyalties. He demands their worship. He brings them out of Egypt, a land filled with many gods. Lots of harsh masters is what it says in Exodus 1. And he commands them to worship him and serve him only. And this is because they were in distress and called to him. So he intervenes and he solves their mess by giving them instruction to worship only him. And this reminds me of James chapter 1, where James is saying, you know, ask for wisdom. But when you ask, make sure that your hope is in God alone, your faith is in him Because a person whose loyalty is divided between the world and God, that person is unstable in all that they do. And there's an internal storm always raging on the inside of people with divided loyalties. They're in the kingdom of God, but they don't have the peace of God. Because their loyalty is strained in too many different directions. There's too many masters telling them what to do. Too many gods demanding their attention. Too many lords that are requiring their time, and they live in perpetual disturbance. And this is all of our stories, because we're all found in the story of Israel, learning how to become the people he freed us and made us to be. He simplifies their loyalties. I love in um, Isaiah 26, 13, where Isaiah is saying, Lord, you establish peace for us. For all that we have accomplished, you have done for us. O Lord, our God, 
other lords besides you have had dominion, but your name alone do we confess. And when I read that verse, I think it's like Israel's remembering all the other lords that have mastered them. And it's like the pain of that memory, the reality of that disturbance, that distress, that despair is so great. It's like, Jesus, you alone are the name that we will utter. So he's simplifying our loyalties in this day, in your time. He's wanting to purify your heart so your loyalty is not your relationships. It's not your children or your family supremely. It's not how much money you make. That he's first and foremost. And that that works itself out in very practical ways. It's evidence. Like it was in Israel, the instructions that they got. It's like the evidence of your schedule and your checkbook and what you say yes to and what you say no to is evidence of who you are allegiant to. So then I want to read Exodus 20, 22 through 24. This is at the end of the Ten Commandment chapter. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites this. You have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. Wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. So the second thing that the Lord does is he instructs them in the way to live because obedience frees our heart from idolatry. It's not just worship like this abstract mystical thing. It's obedience that frees us. This is why he says he wraps up the Ten Commandments going back again to don't make for yourself an idol. Bring me an offering. Bring me something valuable. Bring me something and you put it on the altar. You put something of your life on the altar so you can be free because you were in distress and now I've delivered you. And in order for your heart to be untangled, you have to follow the words of Jesus in Matthew 6. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So put your treasure where you want your heart to be. Your obedience is part of your freedom. God dealt with Pharaoh, but you work with him and getting the Pharaoh out of you in renewing your mind. We can't downplay obedience in the way that God helps us to become the free, joy-filled people that he has called us to be while we're nomads and foreigners here on the earth. Do not underestimate the importance of your obedience to God. And do not excuse yourself from the obedience required in his word. In uh, Psalm 78, I encourage you guys to this week read Psalm 78. And it outlines all the sins that Israel committed while they were on this journey. Okay, so first, in, uh, the first thing you know where I said that he wants to simplify our desires Israel continued to give their heart in idolatry to other gods. And then they wanted, God gives them instruction, they continue to rebel. Rebellion comes because we think we're an exception to God's commands. And you're not exceptions, you're examples. 
You, Israel, are brought out to be an example of the freedom and the glory of God revealed in a people who are living his ways. And just as a pastor, as a human, my own life, even dealing with my own stuff, it's like we will justify why we are exempt from what God has asked us to do. We think we're exempt to why God says we need to be married before we have sex. We think we're exempt to why we need to tithe. We think we're exempt. When God's saying, I want to use you as an example of the peace and the joy and the righteousness that will flow from your life to bring not just your own shalom and wholeness, but to people around you as well. And Ramp Church, you aren't some sort of special case You are the people of God, and you have a God that commands you in ways to live. And you will experience the full exhale of your soul when you live according to his commands. So they rebelled. They didn't obey. And they continued this cycle of distress and despair. The next thing, in fact, let me read Deuteronomy 8. Because Deuteronomy 8 is a great example of what God was doing to the Israelites through this wilderness and what he's doing in you right now. Deuteronomy 8 verse 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years. Humbling you. Say humbling me. Say it again. Humbling me. And testing you to prove your character. And to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously um, unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. For all these 40 years, your clothes didn't wear out and your feet didn't blister or swell. God is teaching us that we do not live by these material things. We aren't mastered by these. And so he tests us. And sometimes we go through what Paul says, seasons where we have to understand want. Where Paul says, I know how to be content in plenty and in want. And those seasons, they're not meant to to cause us to doubt. They're meant to firm up our allegiance. To the God who transcends our daily bread here on earth and provides the eternal bread to sustain us. So he's instructing us. He's asking for obedience so that he can free their heart from idolatry. But they're rebelling against him and they're continuing this cycle of distress and turmoil and disturbance. I love what Romans 8.32 in the Phillips translation says. Because when we are in need... This statement, Jesus says, I mean, he requotes it in the New Testament. He's quoting it here from Deuteronomy 8. Man does not live by bread alone. He's trying to get us to see that God, first of all, God's going to take care of us. He knows how to take care of his own. In Isaiah, he says, can a mother forget the child nursing at her breast? Can I forget you, Israel? He knows how to, he is a competent father. He is not your earthly dad. He is capable of this. So he's trying to renew their mind. And and then I love in the New Testament, Paul echoes this. 
And he says in Romans 8, 32, he says, in face of all of this, this is the chapter where he's saying, can anything separate us from the love of God? Can hell and, and um, hunger and all these things, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And he says in verse 32, in face of all of this, what is there left to say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He that did not hesitate to spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, can we not trust such a God to give us with Christ everything else that we need? He did not spare his own son. He sent his son from the wealth of heaven where he was perfectly received and honored and worshiped to a world where he entered poverty and rejection, suffered at the hands of his abusers and endured the cross so we could come out of Egypt into freedom and now we're wondering if he's gonna give us bread to eat. And this takes me to the thought of uh, Exodus 17. The Israelites tested God in the wilderness. So instead of trusting God, they were demanding of him in the wilderness that he prove himself. And this was a sin because it's one a bit arrogant, right, for us to try to teach God. You test people you're teaching. So it's a bit arrogant for us, the created, to demand God and to test him to make him prove himself. But then they also were doing this testing, forgetting everything that he had done for them. So in Exodus 17, they're in um, the wilderness now. They've come out of Egypt. And this is actually a really funny story because last year when we were trying to find um, a venue for the church, okay, this is me confessing my sins publicly, and I'll probably pay for this later. But uh, we, were, we were looking for a venue, and we could not find a venue. So I was in bed one night, and I'm like, Lord, you brought us here. You brought us here. You're the shepherd of this flock. I'm just trying to help you, and I can't find a single venue in Manchester that will let us have church. And I heard the Holy Spirit say, open your word to your daily reading. So I read Exodus 17, and this is the story of water from the rock. So I'm going to back up, and it says, the people in verse 2, they're like complaining. They're saying, give us water to drink. Now water, you know, like if I'm in their position and I've not had water for three days, I, I hate to burst your bubble of what a pastor, but I probably would be more on the crowd side than Moses. I'd be like, water, my kids are dying, you give me water. So quiet, Moses says, why are you complaining against me? We will always find somebody to blame when we are unhappy with God. There will always be somebody that we are blame shifting towards when God is being hard on us, disciplining us, trying to grow us up. So they're blaming Moses, and Moses said, why are you complaining against me? And why are you testing the Lord? You're making demands of him. And from a place of doubt, you're asking him to prove himself to you. Tormented by thirst, they continued to argue with Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? You wanted to come out of Egypt. You were the ones that were crying out to God in Egypt because you were dying there. You were without God and without hope in Egypt. So you wanted to come out. Verse 4, Lord, uh, Moses cries out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? They are ready to stone me. The Lord said, walk out in front. Let's skip down. So he, um, gives, the Lord gives the instructions to strike the rock. He strikes the rock. The water, the water gushes out. In verse 7, Moses named that place, place Massa, which means test. 
and Meribah, which means arguing, because the people of Israel argued with the Lord, with Moses, and tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord here with us or not? So I read that passage that night where I was in bed trying to find a venue for the church, just to make it really real, thinking, Lord, I can't, I can't get these doors to open. You have to open these doors. And I felt the Holy Spirit convicting me because the natural narrative of that, right, it's a quick downward spiral to, is the Lord with us or not? I need water. I need a venue. I need something that God has said he would give and it's not here. Lord, are you with me or not? You are doubting. I am doubting God in that question. And doubt offends his character. It is offensive to God and it makes us arrogant. Who are we to school God, it says in Isaiah? Who are we to advise the spirit of the Lord? Who can instruct him? Certainly not me. Little old me. What do I know, God? So I just, with fear and trembling, just shut my Bible and said, Lord, I receive the blood of Jesus that covers my sins and the sins of my fathers, and I thank you for the grace of God and the mercy, and Lord, let it be done according to your will. Good night. (laughs) And then God did what only God could do, but he was testing me. He was testing me, and he's testing you. He's testing you in your area of need. He's wanting to instruct you. He's wanting you to walk in his ways. He's wanting you to worship him only. And the last thing, so the first thing, he wants to simplify their loyalties. He wants to instruct them in the way that they should live because obedience frees our heart from idolatry. That's why we give a chance, again, to give money every Sunday. Why is the church always asking for money? Why are you always giving your affections to the world? Every week we need the opportunity every day to express our allegiance to God. And one of the idols of our land is the idol of money and success and career and materialism. Deceitfulness of riches is begging for your attention in your wallet every day of every week. And you get mad because there's an offering bucket passed in your proximity. Come on, this is God's way of freeing us. And I don't know about you, but I've had money's influence, and it is a tyrant. And like the Psalms has said, we spend our busy days rushing here and about, accumulating wealth, and then we die and we don't even get any of it. But when we invest in God, we don't just secure our heavenly reward in him, but we experience his peace that his lordship alone can bring. And then the last thing he displays, he wants to display his glory and his goodness through them. So he wants their bring, he brings them out of Egypt because they needed help. Egypt was their enemies, not his. Right? Pharaoh wasn't up in heaven. Pharaoh was up in their business. So he delivers them. He asks for their worship. He wants to them to experience the life he gives, so he gives them instructions, but they rebel. He wants to display his glory and goodness through them, but they keep grumbling and complaining. This was one of the sins that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians, that the Psalms is mentioned in Psalm 78 of Israel, that Exodus records and numbers, is they continue to grumble. So their hearts are in the wrong place. Right? Their worship is divided. 
Then their behavior, they're rebelling against the things God's asked them to do. So, of course, their mouth is involved as well. And they're grumbling and complaining. And that is offensive to God because he's called them out so they would, as it says in 1 Peter 2, 9, 1 Peter 2, 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who are God's own possession. You have become this people so that you may speak of the wonderful acts of the one who called you out of darkness into his amazing light. So you are here on earth working, walking through your own wilderness, and God's delivering you from the gods of this age, and you're giving him your heart and worship. And there's a test for your obedience but there's also a test for your praise. What is coming out of your mouth is meant to be a testimony to other people of the goodness and the glory of God. But we complain and then we feel drained, right? Complaining, grumbling, even Jesus rebuked the the Israelites in his day. He interjects in a conversation. He says, stop grumbling among yourselves. It's like he's been listening to this people for two, 3,000 years now, grumbling, 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 when he's right up in their faces helping them out. <laughs> and this challenges me because how many of you know our old man always has something they would like to say? And that's where we have to shut it up and nail it to the cross and declare the praises of God. Or why do we spend 30 minutes, 40 minutes getting you to praise and getting you to worship? It's because most of us, all week, we've been trying to brush off the complaints of other people, the negative comments of our own mind, of our own mouth, and we are made to praise him. That's where we function the best. Like a hammer made to hammer, we were made to praise. And when we are grumbling and complaining, we are cutting ourselves off from the life flow of the Spirit. We are hindering ourselves. We are robbing from ourselves the joy God died to give us. So we are made to be this people who are proclaiming his praise. So these things, our worship, where our loyalty is, that's expressed in our obedience or our lack of, that comes out of the words that we speak and what we talk about, all of these indicators All of these outward evidences, hopefully all of them outward evidence to the world around us, that there is a God in heaven who saves. There is a God in heaven who delivers us from our enemies who are too strong for us. There is a God in heaven who intervenes for the poor and the oppressed, who cannot help themselves, who cannot save themselves, and leads them into everlasting life. I want to ask the band to come, and we're going to close here. So I want to invite you on this journey of growth and maturity. What does that look like? That means setting aside your worship. Spending time, practically even, spend time on your own before the Lord, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, like Paul says. Gazing at the Lord's beauty. Don't let Sunday morning be the only time that you sing to the Lord. Don't let Sunday morning be the only time that you gaze at the beauty of God. You were made for worship. You don't have to be, you don't have to have a full band. You just sing your heart out to God and pull your attention onto him. And in that place, your heart receives revelation that gives you the courage to do the obedience that he's asking of you. To put your offering and your 
and, and your sacrifice on the altar. And in obedience, your heart gets freed from idolatry. And your mouth can declare his praise. I want to really encourage you, join me in this journey through this whatever, um, whatever circumstances you're in financially. Whatever circumstances you're in right now, maybe it's work that's really stretching you or your finances or your kids. What's coming out of your mouth? Let it be. Prophesy the word of God and the praises of God out of your mouth. You need to do that. I can't do that for you. I can pray for you, but I can't praise for you. I can't, I can't put praise in your mouth. That's your weapon that you have to learn how to use. And that praise, Isaiah says, it breaks off a spirit of faintness. Some of you are always fatigued because you never praise. Isaiah 61, it says that he gives us the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Come on, I don't know about you, but 6 p.m., I can feel that garment of heaviness coming on. In my kitchen, I just turn on the praise, and out of my mouth, I'm just I'm declaring the praises of God. I'm telling that spirit of heaviness and despair to get out of my kitchen, get off of me. I ain't playing nice with the enemy. I don't have time to entertain you. Self-pity, you've got to go. You've got to learn to do that. Your emotional man is between you and God. I can give you tools, but if you don't use them, so you have power to change the atmosphere in your own heart, in your own thinking. And sometimes even as prophetic people, everything that you're discerning, maybe you've got prophetic insight into some of the challenges, don't let that discernment be louder than your praise. Come on, I don't care what demon in hell that you discern, the, the real higher truth is it's a defeated foe. The real higher truth is it doesn't matter what's happening down here, signed, sealed, and delivered, I'm the redeemed of the Lord. And I'm going to declare that out of my mouth. That's the higher truth than any temporary warfare I may be in. And this is who we are called to be, the redeemed of the Lord. People that are brought into praise. Let's stand to our feet.